I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, unique insights into your favorite authors, plus keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I had been invited to a lunch uh, in New York to meet Daphne DeMarniff about her latest book, The Rough Patch, a number of months ago. And I was not only riveted by the book, but the articulate way in which she could talk about marriage. I'm not sure that I feel like Rough Patch is the right name because I think it's great for any marriage. So the book is divided into chapters that address key problems that challenge all marriages, whether it's money or alcohol, drugs, the stresses of parenthood, sex, affairs, lovesickness, health, aging, children leaving home, or dealing with elderly parents, things that most of us might call life. Daphne DeMarniff talks about the impact on marriage. Well, you'll have fun listening to the conversation. And stay tuned after my conversation with Daphne to hear our what's on the nightstand of some of our patrons at RJ Joyas. But first, my discussion with Daphne. We have heard these kind of stories a million times. I'm not understood. He doesn't listen. She spends too much money. I think I married the wrong person. How could she betray me? Are these midlife crises? Are they fatal flaws? Or are they a rough patch? We are joined today by Daphne DeMarniff, the author of The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together. Daphne is a licensed clinical psychologist offering psychotherapy to couples and individuals. She has a bachelor's degree from Harvard and an MA and a PhD in clinical psychology. Her book provides, with courage and compassion, one of the best discussions, enlightenment, and thought on marriage that I have read. As Andrew Solomon called Daphne's approach in writing as personable, wise, radical, and optimistic. Daphne, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. So I feel a little constrained by the fact that we only have a certain amount of time because if if our listeners saw your book, I have like a million little post-its on every page because I thought, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. But we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep our wits about us. One thing I found fascinating is that in talking to these couples, you often end up helping them discover or discovering for them the kind of individual development issues that they're bringing to their to the marriage. So before we talk about how that manifests itself, I've often heard the couples who go to couples counseling that they then send them to individual counseling in addition to the couple's counseling. So am I reading this right, that that's not your approach? No, I wouldn't say it's not my approach. Um, You know, the book really is about how it is that we mesh our individual development as a person with a long-term couple relationship. And that's always very much at the forefront of my mind. So when I'm seeing a couple, I'm never thinking I'm sort of farming out 
the individual development piece because that's going to be a really important thing for them to be able to assert and articulate in the process of developing a healthier emotional bond. In other words, you have to be able to hold on to yourself and your own viewpoints, your own values, your own emotions in order to have a healthy relationship with another person. That's very much at the forefront of my thinking. Now, it is the case that we all leave childhood with a lot of baggage, or most of us do. You know, that's stuff that we're trying to work out with our partner. But sometimes the couple therapy isn't enough, or there's Mm. really depth work that you have to spend time on yourself so that you're in a better position to bring yourself into the couple therapy and work there. So I don't have a position one way or the other, but I do very much have on my mind when I'm with a couple that it's two people there who are trying to work out an intimate bond and that we have to address all parts of that. It's almost miraculous when you think (laughs) these three things can come together, right? Each partner and the marriage. Well, I think, and I talk about this at various points in the book, I mean, the idea of marriage, I think, is that you have two individual people and then they have something called the marriage Mm. and that they owe something to each other, they owe something to themselves and they owe something to the marriage. And that's the mindset that people have to have to have a good marriage, I think. You have to know that it's not either you or me, zero sum, tug of war, you get what you want or I get what I want. It's like there are things I need and want, there are things you need and want and there are things the marriage needs and wants. And we both have to be attending to that as well. So how would you describe the rough patch? So the way I came up with this whole idea to begin with was that I see a lot of couples, obviously, and I felt that I was observing a sort of, um, I guess you'd say a bit of a hitting the wall kind of feeling that people often come to me with, either as a couple or as individuals, a sort of existential moment of, is this all there is? Can I stay married for another 30 years to this person? I feel kind of dead or sad or lost, but I don't really know why. And I believe, and the thesis that I talk about in the book, is that there's sort of this moment of maximal conflict that hits people of, I've got my life, I've, got, I've chosen my partner, I've got my house, I've got my kids in school, whatever. But emotionally, there's stuff I haven't figured out and resolved. Mm. And that the relationship, in some way, is feeling confusing or limiting or frustrating. And I'm trying to figure out how to make my own development flourish and this marriage flourish. And they often come to some impasse there. And so the rough patch is sort of my term for this, what I believe is kind of an existential moment Mm. that I don't think has been um, described with a useful framework yet. I think people trivialize their situation. They try to dismiss it. They say, oh, I must be having a midlife crisis, you know, instead of sort of this is a developmental moment that's very difficult. And people struggle mightily with it. And do you think it's imaginable that there's a marriage of any length that doesn't go through a rough patch? I think every marriage has struggles. Uh, I don't think you're engaged if you're not struggling. (laughs) In other words, I think that if things are uh, that calm and that undifficult, uh, it's probably because uh, your, your emotions aren't totally engaged. That would be my point of view. But that would mean both of you are emotionally unengaged. Right. Right. And and some people, of course, really hate conflict, right? And they try to skate along in a pretty calm way. And that's a lovely adaptive thing. I mean, some people love conflict too much, right? But I think that part of what I regard to be as a successful marriage is that people can kind of deal with the heat of dealing with hard issues because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of problems in life. Your kid has a problem, you have a health problem, and if you try to sort of escape them, 
you're probably going to have downstream complications from that. So the book is organized where it deals with a, a number of issues that then drive a rough pack. Mm -hmm. So obvious ones are money, sex, betrayal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you talk about in the money section, where you talk about a lack of money clearly strains a marriage. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that it made me wonder about is, does money strain create a problem in a marriage, or does a problem marriage create money problems? Right. So very interesting question. Um, I think money stress is a huge driver of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And anxiety often makes us act in emotionally unskillful, explosive, difficult ways, right? So if you think about it, anytime you pile up a bunch of stress, you're less likely to manage your emotions skillfully and you're less likely to treat the other person well. That's just a, a fact of human nature. So I think money can be just enormously stressful in a marriage. It just, like you said, is an issue of paucity or scarcity. But I, what I try to really talk about in the money chapter is that people have an incredibly hard time with money collaborating and compromising. Mm. Because money, I believe, is so close to our core sense of survival. Do I have enough? Am I valued? Am I valuable? Yeah. Very close to the core so of identity. Fraught. So fraught and so personal in some sense that your spouse can become your enemy <laughs> very easily when they're depriving you of things or frustrating you in, in this sort of core survival way, you know, food, shelter, money. So because money, I believe, is sort of so close to this core of do I have enough, these, these really primal human questions, people get primitive about it. Yeah. And so that means it's very hard to have a reasonable understanding back and forth about something that's so much about scarcity and do I have it or do I not. And so I say it's the acid test of the we story. You know, we story is a, a phrase that therapists use to talk about. Yeah, that was about. one of my questions. I love the way you describe that. Yes, yeah, so it's a sort of like, can you, like I said, have this sort of marriage state of mind where there's the marriage that you're both tending to, right? And you're both collaborating around goals and values in the marriage. And money is just a notorious area of breakdown in that way. And so the couple that I talk about in that chapter, I'm really trying to help them work towards some vision of, okay, I'm over here and you're over here and it seems like the two can't meet, but how do we come together and actually have sympathy for the other person, actually be curious about their point of view and find where the common ground is? Tell us about Willa and Sam, That's because right. I found I found the arc of that story to engulf so much of what you hear about marriages. Like they had so many of them mm -hmm. in that. So tell us a little bit of the story about Willa and Sam, because, man, I was rooting for them. <laughs> That's good. So uh, Willa and Sam are a couple where, uh, you know, in my neck of the woods and maybe here in Madison, Connecticut, people remodel their houses a lot. Yeah. Right? Here, too. Yeah, okay. So that can become a huge fraught area, right? It involves money. It involves huge expense. It involves millions of decisions. It, it involves compromise. It involves collaboration. And so it's just sort and of... And how you imagined your life. Right, exactly. Dreams, aspirations, you know, what are our limits and what can we attain? I mean, all of that is in there. So I thought it was a good sort of um, vessel for talking about you know, how two people can collaborate on a huge, meaningful endeavor. And he has a job that he hates, but his job supports the family. 
And she uh, could go back to work, but if she did, you know, it would barely cover the child twins, care. Right? They have twins, right. So it's one of those situations where, you know, he's working more than he'd like. She's working less, but the economics of the situation sort of demand that he goes and slogs away. But he hates his job. So one thing I thought was important about that that example was that they were both offloading their own internal conflict onto the other person. Mm. So he's busily saying, here you are forcing me to, you know, take stay at this job I despise and you're so materialistic, blah, blah, blah. But if you dig a little bit, he's actually happy that she wants to remodel the house because he wants a better house too. And he's actually happy that she's, um, you know, spearheading that. And he actually feels he wants the lifestyle that this is going to create for them. So in other words, it's very natural and very toxic, the way couples sort of decide that part of their own conflict is owned by the other person and mm. then scapegoat them. So the beginning of the therapy was kind of all about that. You know, it was each of them sort of being like, you're doing this to me. No, you're doing that to me. And the whole process was trying to say, wait a minute, you're both having conflict in yourselves about yeah. resources, limits, aspirations, and then you're blaming the other person for that. And the way I talk about it is we so easily, especially with money, blame our spouse for the limits of reality. So actually, reality means there's trade-offs. Reality means there's limits and you can't have everything. But it's easier to say, well, I could have this if only you weren't keeping me from it. So mm. it's this whole long, arduous effort to get them to be able to see that. And w the chapter is a lot about going back into their past yeah. and talking about where this all came from for each of them. Right, so he had this mother who was kind of a spendthrift, and she left the family, and then the, the dad was kind of like, she was awful and materialistic, right? And they bonded over that. And so he's ready to see his wife that way. Yeah. He's ready to project all that onto her, and she can't get out of that box because he's so busy putting her there. And she was this sort of, from a much poorer family and didn't have resources, but she was sort of this special girl who got things. So she felt guilty about that, but it also she had this real aesthetic sense and this real flair, and that's what was valued. So she's always on one side of that or the other, the sort of spoiled, entitled kid or the sort of deprived kid. And she's playing this out with him, right? So as we dig in all that and as they hear each other, um, story, and they're in this context where our whole purpose is understanding rather than blame and criticism, they start having empathy, they start having compassion for themselves, and they can slowly work toward seeing this as their shared project. Were you surprised at how reconciled they seem to have ended up? It's not a foregone conclusion. You know, not everyone gets there. So what are the circumstances, do you think? Because I did feel that the book in talking about any issue, yeah. had kind of an optimistic take on the possibilities, even when they look really fragile and ugly. Mm -hmm. What are the circumstances where the rough patch is a cavern? It's over. Yeah, yeah. So at various points in the book, I say that... Um, you know, you can have two couples who have exactly the same problems and exactly the same difficulties and exactly the same kind of negative profile. But if one couple, in one couple, the people can be aware of what they're doing and mm. take responsibility for it, that makes all the difference. So in my view, the cavern or the chasm or the, the, the pit of the rough patch, the situations where people can't get out, are where they can't say, look, I know I'm behaving this way, I know it's problematic, and I'm trying to change it. Mm. No matter what they're doing, that is, the, I believe, the wonder drug of marriage, to be able to say those things. And what's so tragic is people can have everything, but sometimes they just can't do that. They cannot take responsibility for what they're doing, 
and they can't be aware of their emotions. And that, I think ultimately, it's very hard for people to be married to someone where they feel the only way to stay married to this person is to buy into their truth, always see it their way, never get a hearing, never have a voice, because that person can't apologize, can't see what they're mm. doing, can't be self-aware. Man, that feels like a really rough act. I mean, yeah. that would feel impossible. Yeah, and I, I mean, the last second to last chapter is called Staying or Leaving because mm. I'm, not, I'm not in the tank for marriage. Like, stay married regardless. I'm really about, like, how do you actually have a meaningful, intimate relationship with somebody? And when is it possible and when is it not? You know, one of the things that I think about, I think the longer you're married the more you understand ebbs and flows mm -hmm. and that there are times where you think, wow, how lucky am I? And then there are other times where you're like, why did I marry this? Guy? You know, like, <laughs> what was I thinking? But do you think that longer term marriages are more likely to stay together because they understand that it's ebbs and flows? You know, that's a really interesting question. I'm, I'm always confused by this because the research is that, you know, the people who've been married the longest are the happiest. But then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, haven't the other person, people already divorced? I yeah. mean, your sample yeah. is already the people who stayed together. So this, I even talked to a professor at Berkeley this past year who I tried to get to explain this to me, and it still didn't really land. But it is true that the longer people are married, that the, if you look at an older cohort, they have better emotional self-regulation. Mm. In other words, they're managing their own emotions better. Right. Now, you could argue it's because they don't have the stress of the mortgage and the kids and the job and everything that's stressing everybody out in their early But years. other things come along. Yeah, other things certainly come along, health issues, whatever. And, and they are better at managing their own emotions. They're better at emotional communication. And they've also learned how to kind of work with the minefields. I mean, one thing that older couples say to me is, we know what our arguments are. We've been through them a million times, and we don't want to spend our remaining life energy having the same argument. My husband calls it picking at a scab. <laughs> so you know to avoid it and even inject humor, right? Like, right. oh, here we go again. Do we want to spend our evening this way? Right. right. But it doesn't feel terminal. And I think one of the great joys and benefits of a long marriage is that sense of sturdiness, that sense of robustness, mm. that sense like I can actually hate this person today, and it's not going to destroy anything. Does authentic love transcend personal preferences or is fulfillment of our personal preferences the wellspring of love? Mm -hmm. Where do you come down on that? Okay, so that's my interpretation of Kierkegaard's view, <laughs> which I can't vouch for really. But I, I think part of the dilemma is when you're in a tough spot, with your spouse and you don't feel the love, right? And it, uh, you know, maybe it's not romantically fulfilling or maybe, you know, you sort of dream of another life or another partner or whatever. You know, it is the bond and the commitment that sort of keeps you there until right. it comes back, right? But um, I think we live in a day and age where, you know, there, there was a time in history where you stayed no matter what you felt. That's just what you do. But now I think people are always kind of balancing this thing of how much feeling do I have for this person? Mm. Will the feeling come back? Do I want it to come back? I mean, it's, it's important to actually feel love for your partner or else you feel it's a bad marriage. Yeah. And um, it's just this, this kind of tension, I think, because I think at times you have to say, look, like somebody I quote in the book says, I, on bad days, I'm committed to my commitment, right? It's not the person. It's just the fact of the yeah. marriage you're committed to until the feeling restores itself. But I, I talk about that just because I think we're in a kind of tricky time with marriage. We don't know what we really believe about it. Yeah. And we're a little hedonistic these days. Right. You know, I think that 
You know, I sometimes joke that I never have heard somebody who comes out of counseling who says, oh, the therapist helped me realize it's time for me. That person always seemed like it was time for them. Like the unselfish person, I never hear, I never hear them saying coming out of therapy. So I do wonder if you've been practicing long enough to see where the temperament of the world Mm -hmm. invades what people's expectation of marriages are. So that there are periods of time where the environment is more forgiving, that Mm -hmm. no marriage is perfect. You you make it work. And others that say, there's a million great people out there. Ditch them. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it does really keep shifting. And I think, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And then it was like, we're all coming out of the 50s and we have to find ourselves, you know, and that was the ethos. But I think part of what can be useful, I hope, about a book like this is that I feel people sometimes almost feel they're selling themselves short unless they're out there pursuing more happiness for themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there's almost a danger of people feeling like they're settling for something, and you shouldn't do that because you always should be striving. And I'm trying to sort of talk about this is a much more complex thing than just this person isn't giving me what I want. You know, that's the very individualistic sort of 60s ethos. They don't understand. Right. And as if it's sort of like, you're not giving me what I want, so I have to go get something better. It's, it's a dynamic you've created. You've mm. both created it. You're both a full participant in that dynamic. And you thinking that this is all that other person, if you leave and find someone better, it'll all be rosy. That's you not really understanding that this is a mutually created relationship and dynamic. And I think once people think about that, it's it's scary because they have to slog away and work at it and make it better. But I think there's sometimes a bit of a relief to people feeling, you know, they don't have to sort of always be maximizing, you know. And, and what I'm really touched by in my line of work is how incredibly attached people are to each other. Mm. Attachments aren't always healthy, but people desperately want to work it out when they come to me. You know, even they can put up with a lot. They're, they're coming to see you. Right. I mean, it's clearly a, a subset of the universe, yeah. right, because they want to work on it. But I'm impressed with how hard people do work on it, how much well, it matters to them. one of the things that was striking to me in reading the book, which... I adored because I think I think it contextualizes a lot of stuff. But one of the things I have found over the last couple of days, and I wonder, I'll have to ask Kevin, my husband, about this, is I find myself being a little nicer. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm reminded mm-hmm. what I think the book does. You know, if you're in a rough patch, mm-hmm. I think it is enormously comforting to see that yours is not unique and there Mm -hmm. are ways to sort of move through it and to take responsibility. But I think even if you're in a good marriage, you're reminded of the little tweaks. I mean, I swear to God, I'm nicer since I finished this book. I don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah, really. (laughs) It might be quick. (laughs) Well, it's music to my ears. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I, I mean, I love that. I love when it actually has a practical moment-to-moment effect. What I'm trying to create is a sort of uh, sort of atmosphere of understanding and acceptance in this book. Like, you know, yeah. we're all trying our best. I think you've accomplished that in Spain, oh, Stephanie. Good. I mean, it's just, it feels like it, you can read some marriage books where you really feel like it's saying, you're putting up with that? And yours is the opposite. Mm-hmm. Like, what's your part in that? Yeah. What's, yeah. what's your part in putting up with 
that. Yeah. But I'm trying to do it in a way that's like we're all in this boat together. Like yeah. you're not some special failed person because you're putting up with it or not or you're playing it. Exactly. We're all that. That's what it is to be in this. That's what I'm trying so, to get across. So the other thing I thought about, you you talk about, you quote somebody. I don't remember yeah. who, who's the person you quoted that. When you're when relationships are being formed, you only see the positive. Mm-hmm. And when relationships are unraveling, you only see the negative. Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a um, piece in like Modern Love or somewhere where the person writing it said, "You know, I really believe in a contract. Mm-hmm. Not not literally a contract, mm-hmm. but isn't it better to get all the things out?" Up front. So let's think about, you know, the money that mm-hmm. you expected this or that. Or, you know, do you really expect sex five times a day? Is that your, you know, norm? What do you think about couples trying to have those conversations mm-hmm. before they get married? A, do you think it's possible? Mm-hmm. And B, if it is, do you think it's wise? Does it really work? So I'm a huge advocate of conversation, as you can tell from this book. In other words, becoming as aware as possible of what you're thinking and feeling, unearthing it, even if it's uncomfortable, and talking about it. And sex is a perfect example. You know, Mm -hmm. do you really expect to be fully monogamous for the next 50 years? Yes, no, maybe. You know, what? that seems like a really useful conversation. I think one of the barriers to it is we get married under a set of romantic aspirations. Mm. We don't want to be thinking we ever want to have sex with somebody else. The whole point is we found the, the person, right? Yeah. And so there's, there's a natural resistance to that kind of conversation. And the minute you get into that more practical realm, you've lost something, I think. People feel they've lost something. Yeah. So they don't really want to go there. That said, you know, I, I am completely encouraging of people who come to my office and are like, I've changed. I want something different. I want us to work out a new contract mm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's if you're going to live a long life with a person, you are not going to be the same person you were 20 years ago. And you have to there has to be the ability to say we've changed and how are we going to do it now? And I think one of the p- ways people get stuck is one person is basically taking the position like how dare you change? Mm. You know, I wanted it the old way. Well, that that's painful. That's a big loss, but if you're going to be truthful, and realistic about what it takes to really stay together, there has to be a certain flexibility in that system. And so I'm generally supportive of people trying to honestly say, I need something different now, even if it's not the contract or implicit emotional contract you signed at the outset. You know, I think of it as, and I've seen this in different ways, I even see it as an employer, where marriages are a deal of some sort, Mm -hmm. maybe spoken deal, maybe unspoken deal. So, for instance, we see women who want to come to work at the bookstore and they have never worked within their marriages and their husbands say they're supporting them, but really then the kids are getting pizza, Mm -hmm. the house is a mess, you Mm -hmm. know, they're doing all the things to sabotage it. And you realize they're changing the deal and they didn't really talk about changing the deal. She just changed the deal. Well, so this is a huge thing and so important. I think it never stops taking guts to have those conversations. In other words, she may know I need a job now, right? And it's going to take a lot for everyone to get on board. For her. For her and him, though. Because he may say he's for it, but then... You know, he can't pick up the other balls or, you know, she's ambivalent about whether she really wants to do it. So she 
sabotages it in her own way. I mean, these things all happen, but if people, I mean, I still feel I've been married 26 years. I mean, they're scary conversations to yeah, have absolutely. when you want to change something. And my last child just left for college, so that's a perfect example of a time when it's like, well, how do we want our life to be now? Mm. And I might want something different from what he wants. And we have to actually talk about that. And yeah. that is scary. And I think it's helpful for people to realize the scariness never goes away. It might You might feel secure in the relationship, but certain things are hard to do. Yeah. And do you think people remain worried no matter what? You're married 26 years. And if you said, what's your husband's name? Terry. Terry. If you said to Terry... You know, this has worked out great this way, but I want this new life. I'd like it with you, yeah. but this is the way I'd like it. Yeah. Do you think he? it's logical to think that Terry might think, oh, what if there's no room for me there? I think it's a messy right? set of conversations, right? I mean, in other words, you hope that someone's not going to say, and I'm going to do this huge 180 and change everything unilaterally. Like, that would already be not a particularly skillful way to approach <laughs> right, right. But, But I think it's going to feel scary to both people as you try to shift basic things, you know? Yeah. I mean, but that's not to say you're going to suddenly stake this out and claim it and say, I'm doing it whether you like it or not, right? right. But even just saying, I kind of would like to shift things in this direction can be scary for both people. Absolutely. And but, but, but having the guts to do that, I think if you can have those conversations, you can actually maybe shift it. And the danger of not doing that is you just keep sort of suppressing it and squelching it. and It'll pop out somewhere. It'll pop out somewhere, yeah. either in, you know, irritability or whatever, or in doing something. It's called 10 pounds thing. of this in a 5-pound bag. Yeah. Right? It's going to go somewhere. So yeah. just quickly, tell us that you have one, one little scene that I mm-hmm. thought was classic about overhearing a couple in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Tell us that story. Yeah, so uh, we're sitting in a restaurant in Chicago, my husband and I and another couple, and over here is um, a couple, and the woman says to the man, within earshot, I could hear her, she said, um, I've decided to quit my job to plan our wedding. And what stunned me about this was he was completely silent. He didn't say anything, and she was silent. It was really tense. And I just had this feeling of say something you know say this is your chance yeah yeah this is your chance like set the tone set the path in the right direction here we were like why'd you decide that alone we didn't talk about it i'm not sure i agree and i just thought this is a bad recipe for their Mm. future because i do think um Especially, I just wrote an article about this, but in this sort of like heady, you know, pre-marriage time, people try to minimize conflict, right? And they try not to have disagreements if they can possibly help it. But that pattern of one person just sort of fitting themselves to the other person, even if they have strong, complicated feelings about that, is just a recipe for a bad future. Mm. So I just felt this, ugh, should you I know, go over rem- there and talk to them? That reminded, that reminded me, I've had maybe a handful of people yeah. over the years, you know, because they think if I'm married a long time, yeah. I have some wisdom, which yeah. I don't, <laughs> but um, will say, you know, I'm, I'm having second thoughts about this. Yeah. How do I know if those are just natural yeah. second thoughts because it's a big leap or that something's wrong? And in, I'd say half the cases, they ended up divorced. Yeah. But what do you answer someone in that circumstance? 
That is so hard because it gets back to what you were saying. Once people are at the end of the line and have decided to leave, they recast the whole story. I knew. I remembered it talking to Roxanne and Hertz, you know, saying I have doubts. I should have listened to myself, right? Because you always rewrite the past yeah. in, in terms of the future. I mean, um, if it were me, I would just try to really listen to the whole scheme of what I'm hearing. Yeah. Because I think some things, for instance, would alarm me. Like, well, you know, he always needs his way. Or she won't take into account my point of view. Or every time I say what I really think, she starts screaming. I mean, mm. I mean, they're like warning signs, right? And so I would be looking for what I really make as a centerpiece of this book. Like, what's the emotional communication like? You're not going to agree on everything. Yeah. You're going to have different personalities, different backgrounds, different families of origin. You're All that, yes. But is there a basically healthy uh, way of communicating with one another? Seems to me to be pretty much the... The key. And not that, that, not that everyone's figured that out at 25 or 30. I mean, life yeah. is long, and that's a developmental process. But there are certain things that, you know, if people are too quick to anger or never take the other person's point of view and, or just, you know, aren't that interested in developing themselves. I mean, there are certain things that I would just think, okay, how's this going to go 10, 20, 30, 40 years hence? So if you would pick the one thing that you think is most likely to contribute to a marriage that has the resilience to go the long run. Yeah. What would you say it is? The ability to apologize and to know when you've created a difficult emotional situation. Mm -hmm. In other words, to take responsibility over and over and over again for your own role in things and not feel it's a huge shameful thing to admit you were wrong because we're all sometimes wrong. Um, and um, also to forgive the other person for yeah. doing something wrong. You know, I was just talking to someone this morning. She said, oh, you know, I yelled at my husband because, you know, he forgot to take the kids to school at this kind of time. And I thought, you know, these things happen all the time every day because we're all stressed and have a million balls in the air and we take it out on each other. But if you can let it go, you know, basically we're on the same team and, you know, we're, we're trying our best and not dig in, either by saying I'm never wrong or saying you're always wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really that. Sort of always is generally a bad word, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and never. <laughs> <laughs> always and never. Yeah, yeah. so to, to really have that resilience to say, to look at the big picture, to say, you know, basically we're on the same team and both trying to be good people. Yeah. You know? And I do, you know, we didn't get to cover yeah. all the chapters because I think, as we said in the beginning, there's um, chapters on marriage as a story, sex. I love the affairs, flirting. I, th they were an interesting couple yeah, also. Yeah, yeah. Alcohol and other attempted escapes, money, the knife in the drawer. I love yeah. that line. <laughs> love sickness. That, that was, we probably won't have that much time um, to talk about it, but you cover a chapter where this woman in a perfectly good marriage becomes head over heels obsessed with a person that has given her no reason mm -hmm. to lead her on, and you actually figured out with her what was driving that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, again, it, and it bears on the affairs chapter, too, in a long marriage, you have to figure out, you know, how you're going to deal with other attractions, fantasies, and all of that. Now, she was interesting, and I try to talk about this in the chapter, because she had a sort of traumatic event that sort of pitched her into this. Mm. And I find that people get into these sorts of situations often when they've had a loss 
or something traumatic. Mm -hmm. that, that, um, and I haven't figured out why this happens. I've just sort of observed it anecdotally. And that chapter is really my attempt to understand why do people go to these sort of love infatuations sometimes when, you know, something scary or sad is happening in some other part of their life? And I just thought it was um, an interesting question, something I'd like to study more. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. A friend and I had this conversation, and we were talking about this idea of soulmates mm -hmm. versus opposites, meaning mm -hmm. you love to go to the theater, you love to read, you love to talk about you know, something in great depth, that's your soulmate. And, or the other way where they love baseball, mm -hmm. you know, you love classics. Mm -hmm. Or do you think those issues are as big a driver as the other issues that you've been talking about? No. No. <laughs> Simple yeah. answer, no. I mean, um, both of them have their advantages and their disadvantages, mm -hmm. right? I mean, basically, you're always dealing with two different people. And, and, and part of the question is, how do you deal with difference? And if you're a healthy person psychologically, you can handle difference. Uh, I think one of the traps people get into is you've got to be just like me or I can't love you, trust you, etc. So, you know, the soulmate thing is wonderful in certain ways. It, the, one of its vulnerabilities is when they actually don't turn out to be just who you wanted them to be, where do you go then, mm. right? With people who are very different from you, you might enjoy the difference. And there might be vitality and energy created by that difference. And there might be certain things you're a little sad you can't do with them, Yeah. right? And that it goes both ways. And one thing I really emphasize in this book, I have this phrase, expand out word and deepen inward as mm. part of the challenge of midlife because I think it's really important not to attribute all your problems to your spouse or your marriage you know I talked to a woman who said I just started getting kind of depressed around menopause and I just took up like you know marathon running because I realized I had to do something for myself to help myself and I thought that was a really healthy yeah. approach instead of like why aren't you making me happy you know and so I really think part of it if your spouse doesn't happen to have your same interests, you have friends who have those interests. Right. You have great intimate conversations with them about it. Daphne, I have one yeah. last question I'd like to ask authors. What's the book that changed your life? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, there's the novels I read, and then there's the professional things I read. I would say John Bowlby is a psychoanalyst who founded Attachment Theory, and Ooh. he wrote three, um, a trilogy about children's attachment to their parents, and that has been sort of a guiding light in terms of my understanding of emotional relationships mm -hmm. and marriages are attachment relationships just like parent-child relationships are attachment relationships they're different but I feel like what he staked out and what he helped us understand about love relationships is really kind of critical to my mm. whole perspective what was that line you had about you go from childhood oh marriage picks up where childhood left off yeah so my, and this is part of the optimism, right? I mean, I do feel marriage can genuinely be a healing relationship mm. and a developmental relationship, but it's tricky because we're always projecting and, you know, attributing yeah. and acting stuff out. And so it's this, it's this vehicle where you hopefully start by kind of acting your stuff out, but then through this conversation and through understanding and through trying to understand your own emotions, the other person's emotions, you get to actually a better place, a healthier place. Mm. And so 
Um, you know, it used to be in the Freudian, you know, view, you know, well, everything happened when you're, you know, under three, and then it's just done, right? But now we have a much broader, expansive understanding of, you know, relationships are relationships. They always can be healing. Yeah. They always can be healthy. We're dependent from the day we're born to the day we die. And it's not as if you outgrow dependence and become independent. It's you're always dependent, and it's, is it healthy dependency or unhealthy dependency? Mm. That's the critical question. And so, marriages are a great opportunity to become healthier if if you can use it that way. Yeah. So we've been talking with Daphne DeMarnev and uh, her book, The Rough Patch. You know, I, I think I'd have to say that everybody ought to read the book if they're thinking of marriage, if they're in a good marriage, if they're in a rough patch in their marriage. And, and I think what you do so well in the book, Daphne, is you leave room for everyone to feel normalized in what they might be thinking or doing. They, you know, because I think often you hear people think, I'm the only one who feels, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. Well, and of course, as you see patients over your career, you know that's not true. And that's comforting to yeah. people, and it makes them feel... I think hopeful. Good, good. That um, was my hope. And I think you've done that brilliantly. So thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Daphne for joining us on Just the Right Book. Now let's hear what the folks are reading at RJ Julia. Tell us a little bit about what brings you out tonight. Oh, this is a great place, and uh, we love to come to all the book signings and meet the authors, and I think there's nothing in terms of how to appreciate a book than to hear it directly from the author, so we try to get to as many as we can. Would you tell us what's currently on your nightstand? Actually, I'm reading some old books that I bought at the um, library book sale, so some um, really old things called uh, Waterworks and Sweet Frances, and um, uh, the new one is Underground Railroad. Well, give us your first name and where you're from, if you don't mind. Uh, My name is Kathy. I'm from Waterbury, Connecticut. Can you tell us what is currently on your nightstand? Uh, On my nightstand, I have Devotions, and I have um, an Adrian Trijani book, Kiss Me Carlo. Thank you so much. Your first name and where you're from? Carolyn from Madison. (laughs) You're putting me on the spot. So tell us what is currently on your nightstand. So what I just finished was Ethan Kanan's uh, a Doubter's Almanac, which I bought here last summer at the sale, and I've had on my list to read. <laughs> it was a 550-page book, so it took a while. 100 pages a day. Congratulations. Thank, it's good. <laughs> Thank you. One that's at the top of my mind right now is it's called Stiff. It's by the woman, I can't think of her name, she does all these wonderful anatomical books about um, the body, and I love anatomy, um, and, but she takes a very humorous approach. The stiff is all about corpses, and I've also read her, one of her books called um, Gulp, which is about the digestive system. She has a number of them. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. So that's what I'm reading right now. It's funny, as you say that, I can picture that cover. I know exactly. Yes, the, the, the toes with the, the label, the toe tag. Yes, yes, yes. And I bought that in Mexico when I was there last week at a used bookstore in the little town that I was in. Yeah. Oh, and last, just your first name and where you're from. Elizabeth, and I'm from Guilford. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks again to today's guests. Make sure to pick up a copy of The Rough Patch, which is out now. And for a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, just go to bookpodcast.com. 
Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.